Hi, it's Chris. Have you signed up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com? It brightens your Sunday afternoon with my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, and more. This week's bonus question for Catherine Rampell, do tariffs ever make sense? You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about supporting the effort? Become a member of Chris Reback's Conversations. Members get exclusive early access to select podcasts like my recent live podcast. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership, patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Finally, thank you to everyone who takes the time to rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It makes a big difference. So if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. You know the caveat, though. If you don't like the conversations, well, thanks for still listening, but please just forget that whole rate and review thing. So if you're looking for three things to do this weekend, one, sign up for the newsletter, two, become a member, and three, please rate. Thanks, and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. The latest economic numbers are out, and by the time you hear this conversation, Donald Trump surely will have told us why they are great, why tariffs work, and why this economy is the best ever. But you know better, or at least Washington Post opinion columnist Catherine Rampell does. While we may have one or multiple months of strong GDP, the key question remains, is that growth sustainable? And as Catherine wrote, right now, under Trump's policies, the answer looks like a big, fat no. So today, my goal is to better understand Trumponomics and whether bad economics might just be good politics. After all, we're running up debt, collecting fewer taxes, attacking free trade, fighting with trade partners, implementing tariffs, and then bailing out farmers with $12 billion of handouts to pay for the results. As I seem to ask every week, what is going on? About Catherine Rampell. As you surely know, her columns focus on economics, public policy, politics, and culture, with a special emphasis on data-driven journalism. Before the Post poached her, she previously wrote for the New York Times, and for good measure, she graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Princeton University. Catherine has an incredible ability to make economics not only clear, but human. It was a great conversation. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Catherine Rampell. Catherine, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Good to be here. So you write about economics and other things, but largely economics for a living. And you also were an economics major in college, and you did pretty well at a really good school. I presume you may have even studied under some pretty prestigious professors. Uh, maybe some of them even won Nobel Prizes. <laughs> Uh, alas, no, but I did work for an excellent economist, okay. um, Alan Kruger, yeah. who, uh, those of you out there who may remember your Econ 101 class, you probably learned about Card and Kruger, uh, which is a very famous study looking at the minimum wage and finding that if you raise the minimum wage a teeny tiny bit, it not only 
um, may not depress employment, but could actually raise it. So that's what he's best known for. But he also later went on to be uh, President Obama's um, Council of Economic Advisors chair, yep. amongst other accomplishments. He's still, you know, very involved in researching and writing about policy and serious economic research. So, right. yes, I, I was his research assistant back in the day. Back in the day. Okay, so not bad, not a bad pedigree. So with all of that, how come you and your professors um, didn't know that trade wars and tariffs are good, and not only that, that they're easy to win? You know, it's a funny thing. Um, you know, for several hundred years, in fact, economists have believed that trade is a good thing, that there are mutual gains from trade, that I get something and you get something when we decide to voluntarily make an exchange. And yet somehow, somehow. Uh, Trump and one of his economic advisors has decided that all of those years of wisdom are wrong, and instead we should have massive tariffs and uh, stop trading with friends and foes alike uh, and, and return to autarky, you know, the idea that we should be self-sufficient. No, so, um, th there, is nothing, there has been nothing <laughs> about the track record so far to suggest that economists have been wrong on this general point, although there obviously could have been more done to help those hurt by trade, and there have been losers uh, as well as winners. But Trump's track record so far suggests that we have many more losers um, in the pipeline as a result of these barriers to trade. How would you define Trumponomics? How would I define Trumponomics? You know, it's peculiar. I think he's very fixated on trade deficits. Um, because he thinks that if you have a trade deficit with another country, that means you are losing somehow, failing to recognize the fact that you are getting something in exchange for the money you're sending abroad in the yeah. form of goods and services. That's yep. what you would get. Um, so I think he's very fixated on that. Um, he seems to believe a lot of other peculiar things, um, including that the numbers are all a hoax unless they make him look good. Um, beyond that, you know, I think he's basically um, an economic nationalist. You know, he thinks that the solution to improving our economy lies in extracting as much from the other guy as possible. Win-win is not a thing. It's always win-lose. Uh, I think he clearly believes in cutting taxes as he has done um, very heavily. He's, yeah. he's um, put the federal government into about $2 trillion more of debt through his tax cut last December, and he is gunning for more tax cuts going forward. So yeah, I would say that Trumponomics is mostly fixated on this idea that um, trade deficits are bad and tax cuts are good. I think that's how I would sum it up. Oh, and, and I want to talk to you about some of the, you know, apparent benefits. The GDP numbers just came out, and we'll talk about, you know, and get your point of view on why those uh, really gaudy numbers may or may not be quite as beautiful as they seem. We'll talk about that in a second. But you touched on a point just a moment ago that kind of – in terms of how we got here, um, there were a lot of folks who did not benefit from – trade. And there were a lot of folks who, while gains were being made post the uh, economic crash and post 2008, um, a lot of folks who, who didn't 
partake in that. In fact, most po- most folks didn't. Um, do you? Is it understandable how we got here? Uh, are we kind of at at you know m- maybe wrong solution, but understand how we got here, or is there a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation in terms of the, the road that that got us to where, you know to the place where we are? I think if you talk to the vast majority of economists, they would say that greater trade liberalization has been, on the whole, a very good thing, both for the United States and many poorer countries, um, in the sense that in the United States, consumers have had much uh, higher standards of living, partly as a result of lower cost goods coming in. Mm. Um, and so that's the, the main benefit that we, or one of the main benefits that we've seen here. We've also, of course, had access to lots of other markets as well, you know, we export, we, we actually have a trade surplus in services, which for some reason this administration likes to ignore. So we have a, a deficit in goods, but we have a surplus in services, and that includes things like financial services or insurance or logistics right. or what have you. But, but um, those aren't making things, right? That's not well, manufacturing. I, I, I understand. Not clear, it's not clear why that matters. I mean, we are a service-driven economy. We have been a service-driven economy for decades upon decades upon decades. Um, so the idea that we should be that, it, that we should be making things is a little bit peculiar if we're talking about physical goods, given that the vast majority of workers are not in manufacturing and they're not in farming. If you want to kind of lump that in there, mm-hmm. Mo- almost all workers work in services of some kind, and in fact. Uh, A lot of the manufacturing jobs that have been lost are sort of for lower value added goods. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, do we really want to um, bring back jobs to create really cheap toys and T-shirts and things that are are made at, um, you know, that that probably would not pay very high wages given the cost, uh, where the cost of the goods are now. So I think this fixation with manufacturing is sort of based on nostalgia and does not reflect where the economy is now. That said, um, there have been manufacturing workers who have been hurt by lots of changes in the economy, including trade, uh, also including automation, by the way. We actually make a lot, we make at least as much steel, maybe more steel, I think, the last time I looked at this um, today than we did in the 80s. We just do it with like half as many workers. So it's not entirely about trade. We have these huge productivity gains, huge technological gains that have also put people out of work. And I do think we have done too little to help those uh, populations of workers who have been displaced by any of these changes. Um, So I think that the grievances of people in the so-called, you know, rust belt parts of the community are completely understandable. Many of them have lost their jobs or they have or they see that their children won't have the opportunity to have the same middle class wage that they once had because the economy has changed for all of these reasons. And we haven't really done enough to help those people um, land on their feet or give them better opportunities. So I think all of that is completely true. Um, And the free traders maybe had too much faith that uh, back in, let's say, the 90s, um, that free trade would work itself out and that the losers would land on their feet without additional compensation from the government in the form of trade adjustment assistance or helping them get new skills or whatever. So it's it's absolutely true that there are there have been people who have been hurt. The gains from trade 
have been large, but they're sort of diffuse, whereas the, um, the losses from trade are much more highly concentrated, and we have been failing communities that have been hurt by trade, by, you know, by China's ascension to the WTO, for example. Um, so yes, there's, there's certainly much more we could have done. Whether imposing massive tariffs, hundreds of billions of dollars of tariffs, which is what the administration has, is now talking about, whether that's the solution, I think is a completely different issue. And I think that's wrong um, for lots of reasons. But in any case, it's, it's the, the diagnosis has some truth to it. It's just that the prescription is highly misguided. You know, as you were talking about that, I was hearing in my voice, uh, in my head, the voice in my head that I was hearing um, was from the early 90s. And, and you referenced that period. I mean, there, there was a period where um, the talk about um, retraining and talking about uh, providing new skills and education for workers in older industries, that there was political currency to that. That was a, that was kind of a core portion of what Bill Clinton ran and won on. H has that kind of fallen a bit to the side, do you think, in terms of a political issue? Can that is that something that, that would be a, a reasonable political issue, or do you think that it's out there and I'm maybe not paying as much attention to it as I should? You know, there is talk and to some extent movement on this issue. The problem is that retraining has a, a mixed record. You know, there have been a lot of studies looking at various different kinds of retraining programs and mm. whether the resources are ending up in the right places, whether workers are, are gaining skills in industries that are actually expanding. And it can be very difficult um, to make projections about where workers and federal dollars should be um, invested if there's going to be a big payoff. Not to mention, of course, that there is, even if you have good information, um, you can still have bad out outcomes because people get defrauded or they make poor decisions or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, there, there is movement on this front. There's been a big push towards apprenticeships, for example, um, in the last few years, both under Obama and under Trump. Um, so there is movement here, but I think we could be doing a lot more to help workers, to get, get them better information. Uh, and to the extent that, um, that there, I'm seeing really any evolution on that information front, it seems to be going in the wrong direction in the sense that for example, under Obama, um, there was something called the gainful employment rule, which was a requirement that for-profit institutions and select nonprofit institutions had to publish data about uh, what the employment outcomes were for their students. You know, did they get jobs at what wage and how did that compare to the debt that they took on? This administration has been uh, has actually several times delayed that rule, amongst other kinds of things that might be more consumer friendly and that might help um, students who are not all 18 to 22 year olds, by the way. You know, a lot of these students, most of these students, I believe, are so-called non-traditional students who are who might be older people who are trying to get a new certification, a new degree to change careers um, to make sure that they have good information. Um, and, and it looks like this administration is actually putting up some roadblocks there. So there are a lot, there are a lot of different things we could be doing. Um, and some of them are small and some of them are big, 
But I'm at least on the transparency front, you know, in, in helping consumers make good decisions, it seems like we're moving in the wrong direction. Can we talk about soybeans? You, sure. You, you, the sexiest subject of all. I mean, I'm I'm getting out of Bitcoin and I'm moving into soybeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the exports you tweeted today, um, Rosa projected three thousand percent annualized in in Q2. Um, the jump you wrote that the jump in soybean exports alone probably added 0.6 percentage points to GDP growth in the second quarter. What in the world, Catherine? Do soybeans have to do with our GDP growth? I am so glad you asked. Uh, I I thought you might be. (laughs) (laughs) So part of the reason why GDP growth was strong in the second quarter, uh, it was 4.1%, had to do with trade, but not for the reason that uh, this administration might like to have you think. The issue is that there were uh, a lot of companies that were, uh, to use somebody else's turn of phrase, an economist at Morgan Stanley, they were uh, doomsday prepping. I.e., they were trying to get their orders in as quickly as possible before tariffs went into effect. They were trying to outrun tariffs. And soybeans are an excellent example of this, right? Uh, China uh, notoriously put major tariffs on soybeans, and uh, our soybean farmers rely on China for a huge portion of their business. So there was a, a big run-up in soybean orders uh, in the second quarter of this year. We'll probably see that reversed later this year because the orders are already in, the tariffs are in effect. Uh, why make new purchases at this point? So so the trade war did probably increase uh, GDP growth, but not for the desired reasons. It in- increased GDP growth because people were freaking out about how much worse things were about to get. Have you ever looked and, – and I have – I mean we all have kind of to a certain extent, but I, I don't know if you've gone more in-depth at how Trump ran his businesses. And and I'm asking because it it feels – from what I've read and heard, and again, I haven't really gone in-depth, it feels like a lot of how our economy and fiscal policy is running now – and you just described some of it. Gin things up as hard as you can for the immediate term. And, and let, let's talk – you talked a little bit about – um, uh, taxes and and other things that have, have tax cuts and other things that seemingly are um, maybe ginning up uh, uh, GDP growth or ginning up economic movement in the immediate term. But but work as hard as you can for the immediate term, and you know worry about tomorrow sometime in the future. Um, so it, first of all, does that seem right? And while that may or may not be a way to run a casino, um, is that any way to run a country? I think the stronger parallel I see in how Trump ran his business versus how he is, try- he is trying to steer the economy is that his word is not his bond, mm. <laughs> in that any deal he makes can be renegotiated, right? Uh, whether we're talking about trade deals, whether we're talking about paying a small business, uh, he might agree to something and then the next day decide, you know what? I've changed my mind, doesn't matter if this is legally binding, doesn't matter if I signed a contract or, or the United States signed onto a multilateral pact of some kind, as in the case of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or even non-trade uh, foreign pacts like the Paris Climate Accord or the Iran nuclear deal, et cetera. Yeah. Um, he decides that, you know what, it, um, screw the other guy, and he doesn't really think about repeated play. 
this may have worked for him in his, his business in that maybe there was kind of an infinite supply of small business dupes out there who um, were dazzled by the prospect of working with the great Donald Trump. And then when they got stiffed on their bill, um, he would just move on to the next guy. So he didn't have to worry about reputational costs. Of course, it's a very different situation when you're talking about the reputation of the United States government. And we are going to have to, um, you know, return to the same countries over and over again uh, as we are negotiating further deals or if we want the cooperation on some sort of um, international crisis, shall we say, or, you know, heaven forbid, a war. Uh, so I, I think that there is a very strong parallel there, uh, as well as the idea that, again, um, nothing is win-win, everything is win-lose. And if the other guy gets something out of this, then that means um, I have left something on the table. So that's how he dealt with parties sitting across the table from him uh, in his private life. And it does seem to be how he thinks about dealing with these foreign countries. And that it seems, at least from my point of view, um, it's all about leverage. Are you the biggest? Do you Can you out-lever the other person? And if so, um, go with that. And if you can't, then create some type of leverage. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's, 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 it's leverage, but it's really more like hostage-taking, if that makes sense. Which um, is a, an extreme form of leverage. But, but, I, I suppose, I suppose. You know, there, there were children, there were immigrant children at the border and, yeah. you know, we needed immigrant some leverage. children at the border, dreamers, you know, nice, nice little dreamers yeah. you got there. Would be a shame if something happened to them. Big shame. Um, big shame. You know, nice little um, multilateral trade deal you got there. Nice little um, business, you know, yeah. global supply chain. Yeah. What, North whatever. Atlantic Treaty Organization you've exactly. got. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's really more about... Um, taking a hostage rather than, I would say, using um, existing leverage or trying to be a deft negotiator and convincing the other side that this is in their interest, um, which, again, doesn't lead the the person or country or whatever the other party is sitting across the table from you to trust you in the future particularly if they believe you're going to take that very same hostage once again. Let's say uh, Mexico and Canada do sign a new NAFTA deal, which, by the way, they had effectively signed onto with TPP, which Trump tore up, but that's a separate issue. Let's say we sign a new NAFTA deal. What's to lead them to believe that Trump won't just blow it up and ignore whatever has been agreed to a year from now or two years from now? you know, when he's running for president again. So these, this, this um, kind of interaction, this disdain um, for whoever you're negotiating against has real material costs and can cause talks to break down now, particularly if the other side doesn't believe that, um, you know, that they'll actually get anything out of it in the long term. They, you know, if they make a sacrifice now, who's to say that, they'll actually get anything out of it if Trump just changes his mind um, tomorrow. So I, I, again, I, I think that this is, a, this is really not a helpful negotiating strategy when you have repeated play. A serious question. I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny here. And you write 
not only about economics, but also about the public policy, of course, around it, but also to a certain extent, the politics around it. I mean, I don't think that you focus um, extensively, extensively on the politics, but you, you obviously do pay attention to it. Um, do people care? And is it potentially good politics, this economic play? That's a, in, an interesting question. Because um, trade is complicated and often not terribly intuitive. Uh, it does kind of sound like, well, why are we, why do we have a deficit with China? We must be losing out. So I think in a sense, um, because most people don't have the time or bandwidth to like get into the thousands of pages of TPP to really understand if it was a good deal for the United States or not, um, that if you just tell the public this is a good deal and they are inclined to support you as Trump's base is, then they will believe you. However, um, at the point when this trade war or, in fact, trade wars, since we are effectively fighting on multiple fronts, affects people's pocketbooks, they might start to change their minds. Like right now, you know, you'll see stories about Harley Davidson workers who say, Oh, I still support Trump, even though my company said that it's moving some production to the EU because of this trade war. Trump can tell them, um, hey, my policy is succeeding. Their reality may reflect something different. Uh, of course, who knows who they'll blame? Maybe they'll say um, Trump did the right thing. I love Donald Trump, even though I lost my job. I don't really blame him I blame the EU or mm -hmm. I blame Canada or Mexico. Who knows? Um, I'd like to think that voters and workers are smart enough to be able to put the puzzle pieces together. Um, but in this news climate, which is very, very polarized, um, people get information filtered through whatever source they tend to agree with. So it's, it's hard to say. But I, I can't imagine that people losing their jobs, people paying more, um, you know, at the store won't have some effect, particularly if um, we do have some larger crisis down the line and this administration doesn't seem in a position to address it, you know, whether it's a recession or something else. And on, on that point, and, and then I've, I've got uh, one last question to close with. I, I don't know if you still do these. Uh, I just found in, in doing some of the research for, to prep for this conversation, um, at one point you did, and at one point the Washington Post did, um, this reading your own hate mail, which, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> like a, a Jimmy Kimmel type thing. And one of them that you did, I, it's unclear to me if you guys still do it, but it looked pretty funny. Um, you got this hate mail um, from somebody who said, uh, Catherine, 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 what you don't understand, you, you're t saying how bad it is that wages, you know, aren't rising. But what you don't realize is that our wages have been bad for a really long time. And we missed out on, on you know, all of the climb. And, and it struck me because politically, and you were just saying, right, that, that uh, we're in a deficit with China, so that must be bad. Um, wages, my wages were bad before. They're not growing now, but I trust the guy. We, you know, at least he's standing up for us. I, I, I keep wondering if politically um, the messaging resonates. Um, I'm sure you saw that uh, New York Times interactive uh, map um, you know, that came out in the last day or two of, uh, and you know, it's it's a big red country, um, and, and I'm, I'm wondering to what extent that messaging resonates. 
I think it does resonate because wages have been stagnant for decades at this point and because there was so much fury about the financial crisis and the fact that um, a lot of people lost their homes, they lost their jobs, their credit scores were wrecked, and it seemed like the people who were at the root of the cause, um, i.e. Um, reckless traders and mortgage servicers and, and, and mortgage lenders, um, seem to have mostly gotten off scot-free. So I think that there is um, a lot of lingering resentment and rancor related to that. And actually, if you look at uh, the history of financial crises, they are often followed by a large rise in populism, particularly far-right populism. So this is not something entirely new. Um, But I think that there's still a lot of resentment about all of that. And, you know, as we were talking about before on trade, um, to some extent, uh, that fury is justified, that frustration is is rooted in real life um, bad things that happened. The diagnosis is at least partly correct. The problem is the prescription. And if you look at what President Trump is actually doing on many of these kinds of issues, um, he is helping the very wealthy. He is not helping the common man the or or the lower income, you know, the poor, um, lower skilled workers. You see that in his tax cut. Um, the vast majority of benefits go to the very wealthy, the, the very highest earners. You know, it was predominantly a corporate side tax cut. So it, it goes to holders of capital. It doesn't go to laborers. In fact, the individual side tax cuts, which middle income and lower income people benefit from a little bit now will disappear mm-hmm. in a few years. So you see that in his tax cuts. You know, he's actually deregulating Wall Street at this point. Um, and he is kneecapping, if not completely neutering, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is there to look out for the little guy to make sure they're not getting screwed over um, by banks and by financial institutions and payday lenders and student lenders and and other um, bad actors. So again, there's very real frustration about how uh, consumers have been treated, about how borrowers have been treated, about workers' stagnant wages. But and, and Trump ran on basically saying he was going to address more or less all of those things. But if you look at the actual policies he has undertaken, in many senses, he has exacerbated those same problems. His tax cut is going to contribute to inequality. It is not going to raise wages, despite whatever his economic team is trying to tell us. Kneecapping and neutering. I mean, you really run the game. <laughs> you, you've Nef- got, well, yeah. no, well, you got you Mixed got the mafia. No, it's okay. You got the mafia in there. Referent. You got the livestock farming. Referent. I mean, you're, yeah. it's very flexible. I mean, it's you know you, you yeah you run the gamut. To 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 close out, Catherine. Um, I, I mean, look, you, you've got a, a pretty good gig. Washington Post opinion columnist is nothing to sneeze at. But I, I want you to be honest. Would you give it all up to be a Broadway critic or better yet to star on Broadway? Would you make that trade? um, I have the best job on earth. I did used to be a theater critic um, as quite literally my night job when I was at the New York Times, and I enjoyed it very much. But on the other hand, now I can go to plays and musicals and 
um, turn off the critic part of my brain and just enjoy them as an audience member. So I still get my fair share of theater in, uh, and I'm certainly not talented enough to actually appear on a Broadway stage. So I think I'll stick with my current gig. It's a pretty sweet one. Uh, and, and really I, I can't complain and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Good for you. Uh, thanks Catherine. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Catherine Rampell. Want more from Catherine? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It has bonus insights from her on the question, do tariffs ever make sense? My thanks to Catherine for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon. 